Wow. You made it. <laughs> You're still here. This is great. The first couple of days of the retreat tend to be pretty hard. Um, we tell you now, after you've already signed up and you've been here for a while, you know, we don't tell you at the beginning, you come expecting, okay, it's going to be great, especially the first timers coming on a meditation retreat. It's going to be great as soon as I get there. Oops. You know, um, we bring our trunks packed with our stuff, right? Our stuff, mental stuff, our stresses from life, the stuff we bring for ourselves, with, our, with ourselves. And then as we settle and relax, oh, they're all here. They come up because the mind gets more quiet and more silent and we see them and they're blaring. They're huge. There is no, there's no distraction. So we get to really see them. And the first couple of days seems kind of overwhelming. Um, if it hasn't been overwhelming, great, fantastic. It has been, you're in good company. It's perfectly fine. It's normal. It does get easier. It does, it does get easier. So if you're hanging in there the end of the second day. This is great. It will get easier. Speaking of coming on retreat and bringing our stuff and it getting easier, there is a beautiful poem written by Virginia Hamilton Adair who goes to a Zen monastery the same way you came here to meditate. It's your monastery. And I'd love to share that poem with you. When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over from a dime-a-dip supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. I read the last part again. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. I love how she talks about her trunk full of unusual contents, cemented feet, the Fs, 
And the horse she never had. We even bring the things we never had with, with us, the desires, the unfulfilled ones. And we start to put them down little by little as we unfold, as we soak in this land, as we soak in this practice. Our cemented feet will start to come off. Our trunks will start to fall on our, off our backs. It starts to work. It starts to work. Trust. It happens. It will happen. We start to become more mindful. We start to feel lighter. We start to feel freer. Little by little. Moment by moment by moment. Sometimes it feels like we're enchanted with our suffering. This word enchantment. It's like the fairy tales when somebody gets a, a spell put on them. We are sometimes enchanted in the world with our suffering. We hang on to it. We hang on to all this trunk of stuff that we have from the past. Me, mine, mine my history, myself, my F's in chemistry quizzes, mine. And we start to let go and become disenchanted unenchanted, this fairy tale, this, this spell breaks sometimes on retreat and we have a moment of clarity. We see things differently. We see things more clearly when we allow it, when we allow ourselves to really seep in and be with the practice. Freedom is possible and it does happen. It can happen anywhere on retreat, in daily life. Most recently, a few months ago, I had the privilege to go for a visit to the state prison, San Quentin. And speaking of freedom, finding freedom within the bars was something that was quite humbling for me to see with inmates who had been practicing this practice for years. I'd like to share a couple of stories with you, if I may. So I went with a man called Jacques Verdun, who's been doing prison work for the past 18 years and he has a project in San Quentin. Um, and by the way, for those of you who may not be from California, San Quentin is the oldest state prison in California, and it has 3,800 3, male inmates. Jacques has this, Jacques has this program called Inside Out, and also a program called um, GRIP, which is, stands for Gui- Guiding Rage into Power. It's a year-long program that inmates um, have to get, actually wait, be on the waiting list to get into because it's so popular. And it's a year-long program that really basically teaches them meditation and being with their, with their emotions, with their feelings, with 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 their anger, with 
with the, the, the sensations that come up in the body, basically what we're practicing here and we're learning to be with, to be with, to be with. So that day we both met in the morning with the meditation group, um, inmates who have been coming in together for years and they read uh, some text and they discuss it together. And that afternoon we we met with um, the uh, cohort in the GRIP program at the time. That day, we only saw people, um, inmates, who were lifers that Friday. Um, We met men who had served for 10, 20, 30 years behind bars. And everything about the environment, the high walls, the barbed, the razor wire on top, and limitation of every free choice they had. So imagine how moved I was to find very free people in, in this circumstance, and I'll, I'll describe that to you. There was a man who I was very impressed with. He was just the way he was. It was different. He seemed light. He seemed happy. He seemed much, much more joyous and easeful than the guards. The guards actually, they looked really tight and, and angry and just, I felt more sorry for the guards because they were really suffering because they had this hard shell on because they didn't want to be approached. They had this, you know, they looked tough. Whereas the inmates in this particular group that we met, they had a sense of ease and freedom of the heart about them. This particular one man, um, he was telling his story. He said he had low self-worth as a child and as an adult, and he used to believe whatever his parents told him. He, ha- he grew up with a lot of feelings of shame and worthlessness. And then he said that, that that day when he was sitting on his bed, he just noticed, you know, he was happy. He was happy for no reason. He was just happy. And then he said a remarkable thing. He said, I'm happier now than I ever was outside the prison with all the stuff that I had, with all the choice that I had. I feel happier now. And I believed him. He, he looked light. He, the way he was in the world, the way this practice had really given him freedom and ease in his heart, inside the prison walls. It's just astounding. Just astounding. He was talking about how he sits every day and he sits in the prison yard with his eyes closed meditating. And one of his friends said, yeah, he, he sits in the yard with his eyes closed and sometimes I go tease him, but it's just impressive in the prison yard to feel that safety, that composure to close your eyes and meditate, that sense of integrity. There was another man who said,
after 10 years of wearing a hard shell and feeling really this tightness inside, he just decided to start smiling at everyone in prison. And at first people, people were kind of looking at him a little strange, but then they got used to him smiling. And again, he, he seemed like a happy guy. He seemed like a person who wasn't wearing this hard shell like the, the guards were, were very, um, who, who really did look miserable, a lot of dukkha. There was another man who had been in prison for 20 years and in fact, he had already gone through this program of GRIP, and he had become a trainer for this program. Um, and he told this story of how um, he was doing, he was going about his work, about his job in prison, and um, he's told that he needs to go into solitary confinement. And he's really surprised because he hasn't done anything, in fact, you know, he's been part of this program, he's, he meditates every day, he's just, he's really, a tra- the transformation was evident in this being. So he's told to pack up his bag and go into solitary confinement. And he's, first he's confused and surprised and what's going on. And it turns out that it wasn't anything that he had done. There was a rumor in the prison that a member of a particular gang was going to do something um, to somebody else in the prison. So they basically put anyone who had any history of association with that gang in solitary confinement, regardless of how they were now. So, so this man is put in solitary prison for uh, solitary confinement for sixty days until they figure out actually what's going on with the rumor is and who it is and all that. So. At first, he's confused, and he doesn't, he doesn't know what has happened, of course. And then he thinks, well, it's okay, I'll just meditate. It's going to be solitary, I'll just meditate all day. It's like, you know, being on retreat, uh, you know, I'll just meditate all day. And then he said, he gets to the solitary confinement at San Quentin, and it's not what he expected at all. He had been at solitary confinement in other prisons, and it's been quiet, but... At San Quentin, it was loud. People were shouting and banging and just noisy all day, all night. And he just, he, he lost it. And, and he was angry. And, and he said for the first two weeks, his practice went out the window. For the first two weeks, he was angry and he was pacing back and forth in his jail cell saying, you know, it's nothing is going to change. It's no matter what I do, it's always going to be this, like this. And my history is always going to be um, part part of my. You know, I can't. I no matter what kind of transformation I go through, I you know I, I'll still get punished. And then he said, after two weeks, he got tired of being angry. He got tired of of pacing about, and he thought, okay, well, let me just try meditating. So he sat for a few minutes with all the noise in the background. And he said he could just do a few minutes and, and that's all he could do. And then a few minutes more the day after, a few minutes more and more and more and more until he could sit for 45 minutes undisturbed. And he said all the noise, all the craziness, everything just receded. And there was this deep stillness and ease that was above and beyond anything 
And that was his support. It just got transformed from that place of being anger and suffering to a place of ease and and freedom. And then he said something very interesting. He said, from that place of stillness, the wisdom arose that his past is a part of him. He needs to take responsibility for his past. So he wasn't a relationship of anger anymore. It was a relationship of, of owning and taking responsibility. This practice is powerful. This practice that you have committed yourself to do this week, you have come here to do, is very, very powerful. And even it may not seem so, even it may seem like your mind is going everywhere and you keep bringing it back to the body, to the breath. Trust, trust that this is how it works. This is the process. This is the process. It takes time. It takes cultivation. And it does work. It does work. So this practice, what is this practice? It's basically the four foundations of mindfulness. As we've been unfolding the instructions every morning starting with the breath, body, and expanding further. This is the practice of four foundations of mindfulness, one of the basic and main teachings of the Buddha, as explained in one of the suttas, called this, the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness. And I'd like to talk more about the four foundations of mindfulness tonight, really trying to demystify these practices that we're doing. It leads to freedom, but what is this practice, right? So what are the four foundations of mindfulness? The first foundation is the body, as we started with the body and sensing the breath in the body. The second foundation, as we'll talk about tomorrow morning in the morning instructions, is paying attention to Vedana or feeling tone. I'll just name them now and I will go into them in more detail in a moment. The third foundation is the mind, mind states, thoughts, in Pali known as citta. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is known as the dharmas, translated as mental phenomena or processes. And I'll talk more about that in a moment also. So this practice of being mindful of these four, the progression goes from the gross to the more subtle. The body is gross. Right here, we can feel it, sensations, right here, right? And then we'll move into feeling tone, which is in the mind we notice it, more refined. And then mind states, still more refined. And then dharmas, mental phenomena, still more refined. So that's the progression that we're following. There is a rhyme and reason to it.
So let me start with the body. So mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath, breathing, it's the first foundation of mindfulness. And we start there because it's the best way to start establishing yourself, tethering the mind, bringing stability to the mind, especially when we come to the retreat from this busy, busy life, this crazy life that we've led with emails and this and that and responsibilities. And and as I was telling folks in one of the groups today, it's like a car that has been driving really fast and we get to the retreat and we stop and it's still vibrating. Did you notice that the past couple of days? Yeah. So with the body, with mindfulness of the body, we keep bringing back our attention to the, bo- to the body, to, se- to tether, to, to stabilize. And again, another simile that I like to use is likening the mindfulness, the, this, the four foundations of mindfulness, to a pyramid. On the bottom layer, we have mindfulness of the body. Then we have Vedana. And then we have the mind states. And on, and on the very top, the Dhamma. So the more refinement. So if you think of having the, the mind more on the top and having the body on the bottom, if a pyramid gets top-heavy, if we get too lost in our thoughts, thinking, 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 we get toppled over, right? But if you have this heavy base, if you have a stable, heavy base on the bottom, you can be stable. Thoughts can come up, but you can come back to the stability of the body. You can come back to the stability of the body, stability of the breath. Now the simile in, um, is that of these blow-up, big blow-up um, stand-up dolls that have a lot of sand on the bottom. If you knock them over, they stand up again because the bottom is heavy. That's mindfulness of the body. When you're, when, you, when you're tethered in your body, like you get knocked over by thoughts, whoop, you come back to the body. You get knocked over by emotions, whoop, you come back to the body. Mindfulness of the body, the first foundation, the body, the breath, coming back to the breath, coming back, coming back. In Satipatthana Sutta, for, in the first foundation, there are six different ways to contemplate the body. I will briefly mention them. There is breathing, which we have been working with. There is posture, which we've sort of been working with. When in the instructions, notice, realize that you're sitting, know that you're sitting, know that you're walking, know that you're lying down. Being aware of your posture. Is, is another way to explore mindfulness of the body. The third one is activities. When you are sweeping, know that you're sweeping. When you're eating, know that you're eating. When you're walking, mindfulness of that walking, what, what it feels, that movement, that, that activity. Whatever activity, when you're brushing your teeth, being mindful mindful of that. When you go to the bathroom, opening the door, sitting on the toilet, just again, that continuity is very, very important. That 
mindfulness of the body while you're walking about, while you're going to get your cup of tea. Those are very, very important, precious moments of developing this practice. They're not throwaway moments. The fourth way is anatomical parts. So contemplating elements of the, par- of the body. There's a practice that's called the 32 parts of the body, which is a very, very detailed practice, which I won't go into. But a simplification of that, that some people practice, is contemplating this body as skin, flesh, bones. That's all this body is, contemplating this as skin, flesh, bones. Again, I just mention it. Another way to contemplate the body, as written in the Satipatthana Sutta, is the elements, the four elements. And Larry talked about that, the four elements giving suggestions as how to, it's when he talked about walking meditation, earth walking on earth, feeling the lightness of air, feeling the warmth in, in the limbs of heat. And, and the flowingness of the water, those are the four elements. The flowing, as you're flowing, for example, as you're walking, feeling that flow. The last way, the last way again, I just mentioned this for your information, it's not, that these detailed ways are not what we're covering on this retreat. There are special retreats for contemplating the body where you go into each of these practices in detail, but just so that you're exposed. Um, the Buddha taught, a handful of leaves. And he said that there were many, many more leaves in the forest that he knew about. And the handful of leaves is the Dharma. There's a lot available. So I just want to expose you to that. There's a lot available. We're covering some of these techniques and we're going into depth. And these techniques work standalone and there's a lot more available. So stay curious, stay interested, come back and practice. The last contemplation of the body is actually a death contemplation, is a, is a corpse contemplation, contemplating this body when it dies and it starts to decay, contemplating that. And it's a very, very um, powerful contemplation of impermanence and our own impermanence, our own death, this body being impermanent, this body dying. So moving on to the second foundation of mindfulness is Vedana in Pali, or feeling tone. Feeling tone is is not the same as feelings or emotions. Those are much more complicated and they have a body sensation and all that. So what is feeling tone? It's It's basically it's the it's the tendency of the mind to to label something pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant which for shorthand and so that it's not a mouthful we say neutral pleasant unpleasant neutral okay so what is that and why is that an important practice so as we practice 
with Vedana as the mind gets calmer, and we'll start doing that tomorrow. So for the newcomers, you'll, you'll get a taste of it. You'll start to see how your mind has this relationship with these objects of the mind. This, for example, with visual objects, oh, that, that um, beautiful Buddha in the back, ooh, pleasant, there's this pleasant Vedana, this pleasant feeling, feeling tone. Ooh, the heat, and I have pain in my legs, ooh, unpleasant. Uh, more pain in my back, ooh, unpleasant. Um, and as I bring my attention to various things, basically my mind labels everything, either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And it usually checks out when it's neutral. There are too many, too many neutrals. So as we start to see we, uh, how our mind labels things, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, we start to become more and more aware. It's really the mind starts there. The mind starts labeling. It's like... Um, what, what Malcolm Gladwell in his book Blink um, is, is, you know, basically we come up with, there, there's a moment of contact with an object. Say we see something, there's a moment of contact. Our eye contacts the object. And right after that, our mind labels it. Ooh, pleasant. Ooh, unpleasant. Ooh, eh, eh. Check out. I, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's a moment, in, in a moment, our mind labels things, pleasant, unpleasant, without us even noticing it. And, and then sometimes later we justify our, our actions and the way we felt about it, but with not being, having been um, cognizant of what arose at first. So by bringing attention to that very first moment, to, to that first feeling, we start to notice when we like something, it usually builds up to wanted a little bit, wanted, 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 needed, wanted now, it's pleasant. It, well, it starts with, starts with pleasant, and the, actually the pleasant is what grows and grows and grows to wanted, needed, I'll die if I don't have it. But it starts from pleasant, starts from just a tiny bit of pleasant. Oh, I like your shawl. Oh, ple- pleasant. I like it. I want it. I'm going to go get one. You know, it, it starts from there. But we usually catch it when it's the, oh, I want it. Or um, it starts from, say, when in the sitting meditation, ooh, sensation, unpleasant, pain, unpleasant, unpleasant, I can't stand it, get me out of here, what am I doing on this meditation retreat, am I crazy? Okay, we usually find ourselves there, we usually don't notice Ooh, sensation, unpleasant. That's where it starts. Does that make sense? So that's why this this whole this teaching of Vedana deserves its its own foundation of mindfulness, right? Because it is so fundamental. It is so important in the teaching of dependent origination. What keeps us suffering over and over in this world keeps us tethered to becoming and being. That's where it's said that you can become aware and break that cycle between Vedana and Tanha. Vedana being the feeling tone, Tanha being clinging, clinging. Vedana, when you don't notice it, it builds up, it becomes, ah, ah. It actually, it, it's uh, either, either translated as, as wanting or craving. It's a better translation, it's actually craving. It becomes craving. 
that wanting, that craving. Ah, so when you notice it, it's, you, you have that in-between moment of choice. Oh, do I really, do I really want this? Do I, do I want to go down this route? Do I not? Is it really pleasant? Do I really hate this thing? Do I really hate this person? You have that in-between moment when you notice the unpleasant. Like, ooh, smell, unpleasant, bad smell. I hate this person. They shouldn't be wearing this perfume. You know, it's that in-between moment when you actually notice how your mind is reacting. You notice that reactivity. It's such an important teaching. And when you start to see it, wow, you get to see it everywhere. You see how... Right now, you may not see that your mind just keeps labeling everything. That word, I like what she's saying, all that, I don't like, pleasant, unpleasant, this, all right. And there's just, it's everywhere in your your experience, pleasant, unpleasant. And actually, there's a lot of neutral. There's a lot of neutral when our mind goes, eh, can take it or leave it. And to say that this pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral are not inherent to the object, they're not inherent in what we see in, or in the sensation itself. The mind labels things in a particular way. And they can change. So an object that seemed pleasant one moment can seem unpleasant the next. It's not inherent in the object, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And it's really interesting to see that when you experiment with it. The sound, and tomorrow I'll be leading the guidance. You can, it's, it's easiest perhaps to see it in sound. When you, see, when you hear a sound and you notice the pleasant and you can dwell on it, after a while it become, becomes neutral. It's still the same sound. Maybe it becomes neutral. Then maybe it becomes unpleasant. Then maybe it becomes pleasant again. It's so interesting to see that. It's not in inherently in what the object is, but it's what our mind puts on it. And also, one other thing to say about noticing pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, by noticing them, we become awake, we become aware. It's not about killing joy, it's not about squashing pleasant. Please don't go there. You notice everything. You're with everything that comes. You notice the pleasant. You notice the unpleasant. It's like this. Experience of being human. Experiencing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's like this. Then when you become aware of it, it doesn't take you. You don't, bec- you don't go to, through the stages when it becomes this tanha this craving where you just really want something, you really want something to go away. So it gives you awareness, it gives you more freedom to become aware of, of this feeling tone, of this tanha. So moving on to the third foundation of mindfulness, the mind, mind states, thoughts, In the teachings, in the sutta, it is taught to be aware of the states of mind. And I'll just share with you what the sutta actually says about what states of mind to, to, to notice. 
ordinary states of mind, lustful, angry, deluded, distracted, and higher states of mind, great, unsurpassed, concentrated, liberated. So simply noticing, bringing attention, what is the state of mind right now? In fact, what is the state of your mind right now as you're sitting? What's, what's the state of mind right now? Just check in. What's the state of mind right now? Simply that, simply recognizing, not trying to change, not trying to alter, not trying to get rid of, just simply becoming aware. It's that awareness that is so powerful. What is your state of mind right now? And the refrain, the instruction also in this, in this part of the sutta is to, to become aware of the arising and the passing away of the states of mind. And that is so important to realize these states of mind are like clouds in the sky. They're like weather. They come and they go. And when you see them coming and going, in real time. You see how impersonal they are. They're not who you are. They're visitors. They're patterns of the weather. If there's anger in the mind, it's not going to stay there. It's a visitor. It's a weather pattern. It will come and it will go. If there is peace in the mind, great. It will come and it will go. Nothing to be attached to. It's a state that arises and passes away. And sitting with all of this comings and going is where we find peace and liberation. It all comes and goes. It's a passing show. The last foundation of mindfulness called the Dhammas. It's translated as mind objects. However, (coughs) the scholar Bhikkhu Analyo, who has done a lot of work on this, um, on the Satipatthana Sutta, his suggestion is that we don't hold it as mind objects, but we actually hold these teachings as frameworks or points of reference for contemplation, like recipes, not as things, but as processes, as, as, um, as a recipe, right? So for example, when you're cooking something, you have the objects, you have the wheat and you have the eggs, you know, those are the objects, but you have the recipe. Okay, do this, you know, break the egg, do this, this, it's a recipe, it's what you do, right? How you treat your, these objects. So this is how he treat, he suggests that. And I'll tell you what these, the, um, the dhammas are and why he suggests that we treat them that way and how that could be helpful in our practice. So the dhammas, there are actually five different contemplations. I'll just name them. Part of these contemplations, there is the five hindrances that Larry talked about this morning. There is the five aggregates. 
many of you are shaking your head. For the newcomers, it's the body or form, Vedana, which is feeling tone, Sanya, perception, Sankara, mental formations, and Vijnana, consciousness. Again, I'm just going to name them, dropping your curiosity for later. There is the six sense fears, which is seeing, hearing, tasting, um, touching, let's see, did I get the five? Oh, and the sixth one is the, 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 the mind. Let's see, seeing, hearing, smelling, I meant <gasps> smelling, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. And then the mind sense. In Buddhism, the mind is its own sense door. Basically, the reason for that is you can replay all the other five in your mind. You can play images, movies in your mind. You can recall sounds, play symphonies in your mind, right? So the mind is like another sense door that can play all from the memory of all these other things. There is the seven awakening factors also part of the fourth foundation. There is mind and those seven awakening factors, I'll just name them, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, and the Four Noble Truths, which Jaya will be talking about in a couple of days. So let me talk a little more about the five hindrances because that is most relevant to our practice now. And also tell you what this, this recipe thing, what is that, what that's about. So let me read you part of the sutta. So one practices as thus. If sensual desire is present in him, he knows there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is not present in her, she knows there is no sensual desire present in me. And he knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed sensual sensual desire can be prevented. The same for aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt, basically the five hindrances. So, So there you hear a recipe, right? It's, it's contemplating if this, if this, for example, let's say doubt. If doubt has arisen, the first recipe is you notice, oh, oh, there is doubt present. You notice it. Ah, doubt, it's like this. Doubt is present in the mind right now, right? So that's the first part. The second part is if... Um, Basically, if it's arising, you recognize the conditions that led to its arising. So what led to the, to the arising of this doubt? You look like, oh, what happened before it? What happened to, to arising of this doubt? And if it has arisen, how can, I, how can I work with this hindrance? How can I work with removing it? And then if there is no doubt... Uh, recognizing that there is no doubt and noticing what has, what are the conditions that have given rise to there not being doubt. Sounds a little complicated, but I'll simplify in a moment. 
And then, if there is no doubt, how do you avoid the future arising of it? So, there, so basically, it's kind of even. So, you, you check in. Is there, is there ill will? Is there ill will? Oh, how, how did this ill will come up? And how can I work with it? How can it be worked with? How can it be removed? How can it be solved? Right? And then you also check right now, if, as you're sitting here, check if there is ill will. If there is no ill will, that is part of the practice. That is so important, and we usually don't practice that way. We usually lob on to where things are difficult, like, oh, there's ill will, I'm angry. But we don't recognize, ah, this is the moment where there is no ill will. (sighs) When you recognize that, you actually, in your mind, you're strengthening their not being ill will. And if we wanted to bring in language from neuroscience, when you notice whatever you notice becomes the inclination of your mind. So if you notice there is no ill will, you'll be noticing more moments more moments where there is no ill will. So noticing the presence is just as important as noticing the absence. And again, this is a practice that's both in the suttas and Bhikkhu Analyo, whom I sat with a few months ago right here in this room, that's how he teaches don't just notice when the hindrances are present. Just check in when the hindrances are not present, when you're not feeling sleepy. Ah, the mind is bright. There is no sleepiness. Yay. <laughs> and that yay is important because it's the intrinsic reward in the neural system that will strengthen you're recognizing that and your heart and mind being uplifted that there is no ill will, there is no sleepiness, there is no doubt. This practice is about joy, is about ease, is about freedom. So recognizing the moments where there is ease, where the hindrances are absent, are just as important. So I invite you to practice that way and see how your mind does get uplifted instead of just beating yourself up for feeling the hindrance. Oh, I'm sleepy. I'm having a multiple hindrance attack, which will happen too. <laughs> but also noticing, oh, ooh, I have no hindrances right now. Wow, this is a moment of liberation. This is a moment of peace and ease. This is great. Just as important. In closing, for the last part, I would like to read a short autobiography um, of um, Ajahn Liam, who was a master in the Thai forest tradition. This is a tradition that Jaya was a nun in. So here it goes. Around the middle of the rainy season, actually this may not be autobiography, sorry, it's a short biography. I misspoke. It's a biography. Very short. Around the middle of the rainy season of the year 1969, Ajahn Chah encouraged the monks to practice with special intensity. They weren't supposed to speak to each other. That's what you're doing. 
and the communal mornings and evening meetings for chanting and meditation were cancelled. Ajahn Shah saw that it was the time to give the monks more opportunity to do practice on their own. So Ajahn Liam increased his efforts, and as he did, the results became evident. On the 9th of September, around 10 p.m., he experienced an immense transformation in his mind. He had a feeling of extraordinary brightness and happiness, of which he reports. It is impossible to describe this kind of happiness to someone else. It is impossible to make someone else know and understand it. It isn't the happiness of getting things according to one's wishes, and not the happiness because things are agreeable. It's the kind of happiness that goes beyond these two. Walking is happiness, sitting is happiness, standing is happiness, and lying down is happiness. There is the experience of delight and joy all the time. Furthermore, one is able to uphold the knowledge in one's mind that this happiness arises completely by itself and eventually will vanish by itself. Both sukha and dukkha, which are each other's opposite, pleasant and, and unpleasant, uh, pleasure and pain, in all experience like this are still entirely impermanent states. I was able to maintain the knowledge of this fact all the time in every posture, standing, walking, sitting, and lying down. There was a continuous and equal experience of happiness. The state was the same whether I was doing sitting or walking meditation. If one were to try to describe the mind in this state, one could say there is brightness, but the word brightness actually doesn't describe it correctly, describe correctly what the experience is like. It is as if there is nothing that can make the mind get involved with anything. And then he continues to practice for a few days and I'd like to read this other segment for you as to what is possible, what this, this practice we're doing can lead to. The meditation was very peaceful and the same reflection as before came up in um, Ajahn's mind. We don't practice for anything. We practice for the sake of practice. So he's contemplating this teaching from his teacher. We don't practice for anything. We practice for the sake of practice. And then, quote from him, Keeping this teaching in my mind, I kept on meditating. Normally I would sit in meditation until about 10 or 11 and then stopped to have a rest. But on this day, I continued sitting for about eight hours without moving or walking the slightest change in posture or making the slightest change in posture. With this experience of peace, the mind changed. The feeling of peacefulness shot up and pervaded throughout the whole body as if something were taking hold over it. It felt cool, a coolness that suffused the whole body so very cool, an experience of the whole body becoming completely light and at ease. The head felt so cool the whole day and night, as if there was a fan blowing over it, cool, peaceful, quiet, still. No experience of thoughts at all, 
and no clue at what and no clue at all where they had disappeared. Everything silent completely. It felt totally quiet. The only experience left was that of utter peace and stillness. The body felt tranquil, cool and light. Another part of it I would like to read for you. Mm-hmm. Seeing somebody, I just had the feeling of seeing it as absolutely normal. To see a person as simply a person, just that much. No beautiful persons, no ugly persons. People simply would be specifically the way they were. This is the kind of peace and tranquility that arose. I don't know what it was, but I also didn't care what it was. Always knowing it is like this by itself, in just this way. It is like this through peacefulness and tranquility. There isn't anything to be concerned about as far as various things exist. As concerns dukkha, I don't know what dukkha is like. As concerns laziness, I don't know what laziness is like. Questioning myself about laziness, there wasn't any. Questioning myself about dukkha, there wasn't any. The feeling inside my heart was exactly like this. I tried to recall and pin pin down that which was called dukkha. What is it? I really don't know. I only know how they discern the meaning meaning in terms of conventional language. Because dukkha is just something created by common conventions. When the mind has no dukkha, all conventions whatsoever don't exist in the mind. And the experience of this feeling has lasted on continuously all the time since then. There has been no change all the way up to the present day. The same state still lasts on, and it has been stable, continuous, and without change. Wow. It is possible. Let us sit together and let the words just settle. I try to recall and pin down that which is called Dukkha. What is it? I really don't know. The same state still lasts on and it has been stable, continuous and without change. May we all experience the freedom of heart and mind and taste true liberation through our practice.
thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.